with me, if you would, in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Lord, we do pray now that you would encourage our hearts, Lord, as we consider your word today, Lord, and it's bearing on an important topic, God. We pray that your truth would just shine down deep into our hearts and our minds, our souls, Lord, that we might leave here as your people, having been taught by your Holy Spirit, having been encouraged and strengthened in our faith, having been Uh, built up as ambassadors of Christ, Lord. So we pray that for us today. And Lord, also just for the moms here today, Lord, we pray a special blessing upon them as well. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, 2 Peter chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verse 16 here in just a moment. But when Peter wrote this epistle back in the first century, there were all kinds of popular myths and stories swirling about the Roman Empire concerning a variety of man-made deities. Man-made deities. The ancient Greeks had passed around popular stories for numerous centuries concerning gods and goddesses like Zeus, uh, Poseidon, Artemis, and Athena, just to name a few. The stories were outlandish tales of these deities' love affairs, their exploits and battles, and a litany of sins and bizarre behavior. If you've ever studied Greek mythology, you know what I'm referring to. But the stories were cleverly devised myths that many of the Greeks and Romans came to believe to be true. Well, here in Second Peter chapter 1, Verse 16, the Apostle Peter assures his readers that Jesus' followers had not placed their faith in a man-made mythological deity like Zeus or Poseidon. No, notice with me there in your Bibles. In verse 16, Peter writes this. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Jesus was not a mythological deity. Peter, who was likely writing this letter from a Roman prison, and who would just a short time later lay down his life on a cross. We know that he was crucified to death about A.D. 64, before he was put to death, just a couple years before he writes this letter to the early Christians there, and he reminds them, he says, we were eyewitnesses of Jesus' deity, his majesty. In other words, Peter's saying here, we're not passing along to you fables. We ate with Jesus. We traveled with him. We heard him teach. We saw his miracles. We watched him heal the lame. We witnessed him opening the eyes of the blind. We saw him shine with the glory of God there on the Mount of Transfiguration. And we saw him alive after his crucifixion. 
it was this kind of personal interaction with Jesus over the course of three years that led Jesus' first followers to conclude that Jesus truly was the Savior, that God promised would come into the world to make a way for mankind to be reconciled back to God and to be forgiven of our sins. Now, I'm sure that if you've studied the scriptures and given any kind of serious consideration to the wealth of evidence for Jesus' life, that you too have come to the same conclusion that Jesus' first followers came to. But of course, our conclusions as Christians regarding Jesus today are often scoffed at, aren't they? By atheists and critics of the Bible. I'm sure you've noticed that there are a plethora of uh, books and DVDs, documentaries, and websites today attacking Jesus' existence, his deity, his resurrection, and the accuracy of the gospel's accounts of his life. Well, this morning, I'd like to offer some concise answers to eight of these popular attacks and challenges with the hope that doing so will be an encouragement to your faith, but that it will also help equip you with some ways that you can answer these challenges yourself. The first issue I want to tackle this morning concerns Jesus's existence. Jesus's existence. It has become increasingly popular today for critics of the Bible to suggest that Jesus of Nazareth never even existed. That he was just an invention by some clever, deceitful men back in the first century. Well, the claim that Jesus never existed is an absurd one. Uh, Why do I say that? Well, because there's very good historical evidence that Jesus really did exist. In addition to the 27 documents in the New Testament that tell us all about him, there are more than 30 extra biblical sources that mention Jesus within 150 years of his life. Did you realize that? I've had critics tell me, hey, well, all you Christians have are those four Gospels. And what if those four guys that wrote those four Gospels were just making the whole thing up? I don't even think he existed, they say. Well, they're overlooking the fact that there are 27 documents in the New Testament that tell us about him. But even if we lay all 66 documents making up the Bible aside, there are more than 30 extra biblical sources, historical sources outside of the Bible that mention and talk about Jesus within 150 years of his life. Let me tell you about a few of these here just concisely. The first is this person, Flavius Josephus. Flavius Josephus was a historian for the Roman Empire in the first century AD. He mentions more than a dozen individuals talked about in the New Testament, including John the Baptist, Herod the Great, Pontius Pilate, and even Jesus. Here's a short excerpt from one of his writings. Notice who he mentions here in the first sentence. He says, at this time, there was a wise man who was called Jesus. And his conduct was good and was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. And those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Now, some critics of the Bible say that Josephus' references to Jesus 
might have been forged by Christians who came along afterwards, after Josephus died and tampered with his writings. Well, there's absolutely no evidence that Josephus' writings were ever tampered with, but even if all of his writings were forged and tampered with, there's still a wealth of extra-biblical evidence that Jesus lived. For example, a second source outside of the Bible that mentioned Jesus was this man, Cornelius Tacitus. Cornelius Tacitus lived from about A.D. 55 to the year 120. He was also a Roman historian, like Josephus. Uh, He lived through the reigns of over a half dozen Roman emperors. He's been called the greatest historian of ancient Rome. And Tacitus mentions Jesus in his work titled Annals. He writes, here's a short excerpt, he writes that Christus, which is a Latin word that means Christ, he's referring to Jesus here if you examine the context, he says Christus suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. So not only does Tacitus mention Jesus, he confirms for us, just like Josephus did, that Jesus was crucified. That's what he's referring to here when he says that Jesus or Christ has suffered the extreme penalty. He tells us that he was crucified during the reign of Pontius Pilate, also during the reign of Tiberius, the Roman Caesar at the time of Jesus or the Roman emperor. A third extra biblical source that mentions Jesus is Suetonius. Suetonius lived from A.D. 69 to sometime after the year 122. He was another first century Roman historian. In fact, he was the chief secretary of the Roman emperor by the name of Hadrian. And Suetonius mentions Christ. A fourth extra biblical source that mentions Jesus is this collection of writings known as the Jewish Talmud. The Talmud is a compilation of Jewish teachings that were passed down from generation to generation amongst the Jews and then finally organized and compiled after the destruction of the Jewish temple in A.D. 70. Here's an excerpt that mentions Jesus. On the eve of Passover, uh, the Talmud says Yeshu, which is a Hebrew reference to uh, Jesus, he was hanged. He's speaking about his crucifixion. He was hung on the tree. For 40 days before the execution took place, a herald went forth and cried, he's going forth to be stoned because he's practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. Anyone who could say anything in his favor, let him come forward and plead on his behalf. But since nothing was brought forward in his favor, he was hanged on the eve of the Passover. So note that not only does the Talmud mention Jesus, it mentions his crucifixion and the Jewish leadership's desire to have Jesus stoned to death. But notice also that it tells us the very time when Jesus was crucified. What feast was going on? The feast of Passover. The very feast the New Testament tells us was about to take place uh, when Jesus was crucified. Now we could go on and on with these kinds of references to Jesus outside of the Bible. As I mentioned a moment ago, there are more than 30 of these sources. I think four will suffice for this morning. But it's this kind of evidence outside of the Bible that has led to a consensus amongst every reputable historian in the world today, and that is that Jesus really did exist. Jesus really did exist. And even Bart Ehrman, one of the most vocal critics of the Bible alive today, 
acknowledges that Jesus lived. In a recent interview in the Huffington Post, Bart Ehrman said, with respect to Jesus, we have numerous independent accounts of his life. Sources that originated in Jesus' native tongue and that can be dated to within just a year or two of his life. Historical sources like that are pretty astounding for an ancient figure of any kind. The claim that Jesus was simply made up falters on every grounds. End quote. Bart Ehrman. So in light of this kind of evidence for Jesus, you can imagine my shock a few years ago when I was reading... Uh, Richard Dawkins book the God delusion and to see him in this New York Times bestseller question whether or not Jesus was even a real historical person Dawkins did this by talking about Jesus with the qualifier if he existed if Richard I think Dr. Dawkins needs to have a talk with Dr. Ehrman, Bart Ehrman, before he writes his next book. This is embarrassing for an Oxford professor to talk about Jesus as though there's not even very good evidence that he existed. This is absurd. Every reputable historian in the world today acknowledges that there is very good evidence that Jesus was a real historical person. All right, so with Jesus' existence settled, let's tackle a second challenge critics have raised, and that concerns Jesus' deity. Jesus' deity, Christians, of course, have long believed that Jesus was God in the flesh, God incarnate. Well, this is being challenged today by Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses, and other critics of the Bible who claim that the earliest Christians did not believe Jesus was God. Critics say that that view wasn't in place until sometime in the 4th century. Well, those who make these kinds of claims could not be more mistaken about the matter. The earliest Christians certainly did believe Jesus was God. For example, the Apostle Paul, who lived and wrote all the way back in the very first century, called Jesus our great God and Savior. In Titus chapter 2, verse 13. The Apostle Peter, one of the original 12 disciples, refers to Jesus as our God and Savior. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. The Apostle John calls Jesus God in the very first verse of his gospel. Uh, one of the other disciples, Thomas, one of the original 12. He refers to Jesus as my Lord and my God in John chapter 20. Verse 28. So these and dozens of other statements in the New Testament reveal that the earliest followers of Jesus certainly did believe that Jesus was God. But it's not just the first century disciples who believed Jesus was God. The leaders in the Christian church in the second and third centuries continued to believe Jesus was God. Men like Ignatius. Justin Martyr, Polycarp, Irenaeus, and other well-respected leaders in the early Christian church referred to Jesus over and over again in their writings as God. So not only does the New Testament make it clear that the earliest Christians believed Jesus was God, the early church fathers affirmed this as well. 
So, friends, the critics' assertion that the earliest Christians never believed Jesus was God can be blown out of the water uh, by a tidal wave of facts to the contrary. And, w- and one of the reasons why it's so important to be able to point out that the early church fathers affirmed this as well is because the Jehovah's Witnesses, if you try to show them from your Bible, those kinds of verses where Paul and Peter and John refer to Jesus as God, they say, well, you're misinterpreting what the Bible says there. It really doesn't say, doesn't mean what they say there. Well, that's why it's so important to be able to point out to them, well, then why did the second and third century church fathers continue to teach the same thing? And their writings survive to this day. And throughout their writings, they continue to refer to Jesus as God. They don't have much of a response to that. They're usually not even prepared for that um, when you bring it up with them. If you'd like to read some actual quotes to Jesus as God by the earliest uh, church fathers or even the earliest uh, Christians talked about in the Bible, you can go to our website at alwaysbeready.com and click on our, sec- our section called the Deity of Christ for more help in that area. Now, one of the reasons the earliest followers of Jesus came to the conclusion that Jesus was God in the flesh was his miracles. Uh, Jesus did not just claim to be God. Jesus backed up his claims by doing miraculous things that only God can do. And this brings us to the third issue I'd like to tackle this morning, and that concerns Jesus's miracles. Jesus's miracles. Of course, atheists and other critics of the Bible have a problem with Jesus's miracles. They suggest, among other things, that the early Christians just embellished their accounts of Jesus's life with stories of miracles in order to attract more followers. And it comes as no surprise that atheists say this because they are forced by their atheistic worldview to deny Jesus's miracles. Not because there's any good evidence that miracles can't occur, but because of their anti-supernatural bias. Their anti-supernatural bias requires that they take that position against miracles because in a universe where no God exists, nothing supernatural or miraculous can occur. So critics of the Bible, atheists in particular, come across Jesus's miracles in the New Testament and they say, no way. These things couldn't have happened. They must be made up. And they're required to take that stand. They can't come to any other conclusion if they hold on to their atheistic worldview. But for those of us who believe in God, we have no difficulty believing that Jesus performed miracles. Because if Jesus was the very one who spoke the universe and all of life into existence in Genesis chapter 1, then it would be no problem, for example, for him to speak life into a dead man like Lazarus. God's the one who designed the human body and who created the first uh, man from dust. So breathing life back into Lazarus's body would, of course, not be a problem for him. So our Christian worldview does not prevent us from believing in miracles before we've even considered the evidence. And we believe there is good evidence that Jesus performed miracles. Take, for example, the rise of Christianity in Jerusalem. The rise of Christianity in Jerusalem, it is an accepted historical fact that the Christian faith 
a religion built upon the preaching of the resurrection of its leader, originated in approximately A.D. 32, right in the very city of Jerusalem, where Jesus had been publicly crucified and buried. Now, this in itself, I believe, is a good piece of evidence that Jesus' miracles actually occurred. Why is that? Well, because a message calling people to repent and put their faith in a resurrected, miracle-working Messiah could never have gained any substantial following in Jerusalem if the people had not actually seen Jesus work miracles. The best explanation for the immediate rise of Christianity and its phenomenal growth right in the very city where Jesus was crucified is that Jesus really did perform miracles and rise from the grave. Luke says of Jesus that he presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them, appearing to the people over a period of 40 days. So Jesus's miracles before and after his resurrection helped to catapult New Testament Christianity into existence right there in the very city where everybody knew this man had been put to death. And Christianity continued to thrive there, even in the city of Jerusalem. Another line of evidence that Jesus performed miracles is the fact that the early Christians were willing to endure great hostility, telling people about Jesus' miracles. Why would they do that if they were lying? Liars lie to get out of trouble or to gain some type of advantage or benefit. But what the early Christians said about Jesus didn't get them out of trouble or result in any kind of benefit. The things they said and wrote about Jesus actually got them in trouble. As many of you know, what they received was rejection, persecution, torture, and martyrdom. Hardly a list of perks. That to me is compelling evidence that these men were telling us the truth about Jesus and his miracles. All right, I've briefly responded to challenges regarding Jesus' existence, his deity, and his miracles. Next, I'd like to respond to a fourth challenge critics have raised. And that has to do with whether or not Jesus was a copycat savior. Whether or not Jesus was a copycat savior. What am I talking about? Well, in 2007, a movie was released on the internet called Zeitgeist, perhaps Uh, Some of you have seen it. This low-budget video has been viewed by millions of people all over the world since its release. And many people, unaware of the video's numerous errors, have had their confidence in the Gospels undermined uh, by watching it. The movie sets out to prove that Jesus was just a myth by convincing people that the Gospel writers borrowed major details for Jesus' life from earlier sources, other religions that were around before Jesus' incarnation. And if that is the case, the movie concludes that the writers of the Gospels were deceivers and Jesus himself is just a myth. He didn't exist. That's how the movie basically concludes. Well, I've already discussed how ludicrous the Jesus is a myth claim is, but the Zeitgeist movie still leaves viewers to wonder if perhaps the authors of the Bible or the authors of the Gospels did borrow some of the details for Jesus' life from other sources. For example, did they steal the idea for Jesus' resurrection? 
as the zeitgeist movie says? Well, the answer is no. David, writing around 1000 BC, and the prophet Isaiah, prophesying around 700 BC, both foretold the Messiah's resurrection. They prophesied it would happen long before Jesus was even born. So the resurrection wasn't hijacked from some other religion that predates Christianity by a century or two. The resurrection was the fulfillment of prophecies made by Jewish prophets as far back as a thousand years before Christ. Dr. Norman Geisler, a scholar who's done extensive research on this very issue, points out that the first real parallel of a dying and rising God does not appear until A.D. 150, more than a hundred years after the origin of Christianity. So if there was any influence of one on the other, it was the influence of the historical event of the New Testament on mythology, not the reverse. He continues and says the only known account of a God surviving death that predates Christianity is the Egyptian cult god Osiris. In this myth, Osiris is cut into 14 pieces, scattered around Egypt, then reassembled and brought back to life by the goddess Isis. However, Osiris does not actually come back to physical life, but becomes a member of a shadowy underworld. This is far different than Jesus' resurrection account where he was the gloriously risen prince of life who was seen by others on earth before his ascension into heaven. Quote, well said. Well, what about Jesus' virgin birth? Uh, the Zeitgeist video alleges that the gospel writers stole the whole idea of a virgin giving birth to a child from ancient religions like Mithraism. Well, I know a thing or two about ancient religions, having spent hundreds of hours researching them, having taught multiple courses on uh, religions and cults. And I've researched the ancient Persian religion of Mithraism. And Mithra, its mythological deity, was never thought of as having been born of a virgin in any of the most ancient Myths. The myths say that he arose spontaneously from a rock inside a cave. Does that sound like a virgin birth? Uh, to suggest that the gospel writers stole their idea for Jesus' virgin birth from this ancient religion, I believe, is just uh, preposterous. Uh, the virgin birth of the Messiah spoken about in Matthew and Luke's Gospels was not hijacked from Mithraism. It was the fulfillment of a prophecy given in the Old Testament book of Isaiah six or seven hundred years before Jesus' birth. And many Bible commentators believe the virgin birth of the Messiah was prophesied as far back as Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 where God seems to indicate that the coming Messiah would be born solely of the woman's seed. So, friends, you can be confident that Jesus' disciples did not steal any of the details for Jesus' life from sources outside of the Bible. If you'd like some additional help addressing these alleged parallels between other ancient religions and Christianity, as made popular today in this Zeitgeist video, you can go to our website, alwaysbeready.com. Uh, all the topics are in alphabetical order down the left-hand side of the screen. Go all the way down to the bottom and click on Zeitgeist, the movie. And you'll find plenty of 
uh, help and additional research there. All right, moving along, there's a fifth challenge critics often bring up when talking about Jesus, and that concerns alleged contradictions in the Gospels. How many of you have heard the Bible's full of contradictions? Okay, quite a popular uh, claim. And if that's the case, critics of the Bible say, well, this is proof that the Gospels are not trustworthy accounts of Jesus's life. Well, in response to that, I will acknowledge, as every good Bible commentary does, that there can appear to be some verses that seem to be at odds with one another, at least upon initial reading in the Gospels. But with a little investigation into the context of the various passages or into the cultural and geographical settings in which the Gospels were written and occasionally a closer look at the original language, these apparent contradictions are easily explained. For example, let's look at a couple here quickly. Critics say there's a contradiction in the Gospels concerning Jesus' occupation. Jesus' occupation. Notice Mark chapter 6, verse 3, and the question um, that the people were asking about Jesus. They said, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. So according to Mark chapter 6, verse 3, we learned that Jesus was a carpenter. Can we agree upon that? That's what the Bible seems to say, right? Now, critics read that passage, but then they flip over to Matthew chapter 13, and they read this in verse 54. Uh, it says, and when he, Jesus, had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not, notice this, the carpenter's son? Ah, well, critics on the lookout for ways to discredit Christianity and the the gospel says the gospels contradict one another here. Why is that? Well, one says Jesus was a carpenter and another says his father was the carpenter. So which was it? Was Jesus the carpenter as Mark tells us or was Joseph the carpenter as Matthew tells us? Well, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to figure this out. Uh, in fact, I've taught this study to junior high kids and most of them will raise their hands as soon as I ask them the question who do you think the carpenter was kids because even they can figure it out they were both carpenters <laughs> they were both carpenters Jesus like most men at the time followed in the footsteps of his father the crowd of people knew that and they were asking both questions some people were saying hey isn't this just the carpenter and others were saying isn't this the carpenter's son so there's no contradiction here at all. This apparent contradiction is laid to rest with some careful junior high level reflection. As many of them are. Another apparent contradiction critics have pointed out in the Gospels has to do with Jesus' location when he healed a blind man. Luke chapter 18 verse 35 says that Jesus healed a blind man by the name of Bartimaeus as he was approaching Jericho. Well, Mark chapter 10, verse 46, says that Jesus healed the very same man as he went out of Jericho. See the difference? Well, critics of the Bible say they can't possibly both be right. And that appears to be the case until you do a little homework and you find out that a German archaeologist 
by the name of Ernst Sellen, working on an excavation in Israel between 1907 and 1909, discovered that there were actually what have been called the twin cities of Jericho in Jesus' time. There was the old city of Jericho from the Old Testament story of Joshua and the new Roman city of Jericho. There were actually two places in Israel in the first century called Jericho, separated from one another by about a mile. Well, knowing this solves the dilemma. It's likely that Luke referred to one of the cities and Mark referred to the other. A plausible explanation is that the miracle took place between the two cities. Mark mentioning the city Jesus had just left. Luke mentioning the city Jesus was approaching. The authors of the Bible didn't err. The critic who assumes there's a contradiction is the one who makes the error because he or she is unfamiliar with ancient Jewish and Roman geography. Critics of the Bible would be wise to consult a good Bible commentary or two before passing judgment on the Bible because these kinds of solutions are readily available today to anyone willing to do a little reading. And we address many of them on our website. Again, at alwaysbeready.com, we've got an entire section of the website uh, devoted to what we call Bible difficulties, things that appear to be difficult at first, but with a little research and investigation, they're easily explained. All right, moving along, let's consider a sixth challenge critics bring up when talking about Jesus, and that concerns Jesus's alleged scientific errors. Jesus's alleged scientific errors. I don't know if we could dim the lights up here at all. I'm a little disappointed with my projector's brightness on this dark wall. I apologize for the dim how dim some of these images look. But Jesus alleged scientific errors. What am I talking about? Well, critics of the Bible have pointed to what they believe are scientific errors in Jesus's teachings. And if those errors really do exist, they say, well, then Jesus could not be God. For God certainly would not make those kinds of mistakes, they say. Well, the critics would be right if these kinds of errors really did exist, but they don't. Let's briefly consider one example of an alleged scientific error in Jesus' teachings. Notice what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 8. Jesus said, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it. In other words, there's some evidence for it. Uh, you hear it, you can't really see it, but you, but you do hear the sound of it. But then Jesus says, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So, Nicodemus, you don't fully understand how it works, but you can hear it and uh, see some evidence for it. Well, some critics of the Bible have pointed to this verse and say things like the following. And I cut and paste this uh, off a popular atheist website recently. He said this about John chapter 3, verse 8. He said, Jesus says that no one knows which way the wind is blowing, But of course, he was wrong about that. The direction and speed of the wind are easily measured. Um, Is that what Jesus said? (laughs) No one knows which way the wind is blowing? Is that what he said? No. Uh, Did Jesus say no one could measure the speed of wind? No. Let's read the verse again. He said, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So notice that Jesus doesn't say no one 
can know which way the wind blows, as critics commonly say. He says, you, you, Nicodemus, cannot tell where the wind comes from and where it goes. Jesus was not addressing a group of meteorologists living in the 21st century with all their computers, barometers, and weather satellites. No, he he was speaking to Nicodemus, a man living 2,000 years ago. 1,600 years before the barometer was invented, 1,700 years before the first thermometer was invented, and 1,900 years before the first weather satellite was launched. Without any of these modern technologies that we have today for tracking storms, Nicodemus did not know where the wind came from or where it was going. There's no scientific blunder here in John chapter 3. And there's no need to conclude that Jesus made any errors uh, regarding things that can be checked out scientifically. And if we had more time, uh, we could walk through more of those. But let's keep moving along here and consider another challenge that critics have often brought up. A quick background story for you on this one. I was just on a flight a few weeks ago. Uh, from San Diego down near where I live, out to Philadelphia. I was scheduled to speak at a conference there on the reliability of the Bible. And I had a great conversation with this lady who was seated next to me on the plane. She was on her way to Philadelphia to catch a connecting flight to Germany. She was headed home. She'd been out here for a wedding. And about an hour into the flight, the conversation kind of moved on to spiritual topics And I came to discover that she had abandoned her confidence in the Bible some 20 years ago. And now, at the age of 40, she was full of doubts concerning the Bible's reliability. Uh, And yes, I do believe that God arranges some of my seating assignments uh, on these kinds of planes and and different trips I make. But um, (laughs) get this next slide up here. One of the objections that she raised regarding the reliability of the Bible concerned the supposed late authorship of the Gospels. The supposed late authorship of the Gospels, and this is the seventh issue I'd like to briefly discuss with you here this morning. The lady on the plane told me that one of the reasons she doubted the Gospels was because, quote, the Gospels were written down 300 years, she said, after Jesus lived. Now, I've heard this before, as you probably have. Critics raised this objection to suggest that the Gospels could not possibly be trustworthy if they were written that long after Jesus lived. Well, what should we do when someone makes a claim like this? Well, I like to first note that she hasn't asked me a question about the matter. She's made a claim. That's not a question, is it? So where does the burden of proof belong i think upon her she's the one that made the claim and so i like to offer um just a couple of questions to people to help them see or you know see if they can even support their view and so that's what i did with monica that was her name i asked her a simple question i said well who told you that who told you that in other words how did you come to that conclusion is that a perfectly fair question i think so you have to watch your tone You don't throw up your hands and say, well, who told you that, Monica? Where have you been reading, girl? (laughs) No, just in love, in humility, you, you you, 
you press a person. You ask for evidence. You, well, you, what evidence do you have if that's the case? Or how did you come to that conclusion? So that's what I did with her. I said, well, who told you that? Her response? Weren't they? Weren't they? She went from sounding like an authority on the matter to someone completely unsure of what she had just boldly proclaimed, all in response to one friendly question. She didn't even know why she believed what she had just stated. And this is very common. Critics make all kinds of assertions and claims about Jesus in the Bible that they are completely unprepared uh, to back up with any kind of evidence. And, uh, friends, I told, and I told Monica this, there is no evidence that any of the New Testament books were written down 300 years after Jesus, and not even liberal scholars believe that. And not only is there an absence of evidence for a late authorship of the Gospels, there's good evidence that most of the New Testament was written down before A.D. 70. What evidence am I talking about? Well, for starters, the New Testament scriptures are absolutely silent regarding the destruction of the Jewish temple by the Romans in A.D. 70. The destruction of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem in A.D. 70 was one of the most significant events in all of Jewish history. Well, the silence of the New Testament authors regarding this event strongly suggests that their writings were completed prior to this event. Let me illustrate. Let's imagine that this afternoon after church is over, you go over to a friend's house, maybe to watch a sporting event or something together with some friends later. And so you walk into their living room and you plop down there on their comfortable couch and having a few minutes to kill and waiting for some other friends to show up, you kind of begin to peruse the coffee table there and you, you notice a book there on the coffee table addressing the history of New York City. Well, having a few minutes to skim through it, you look through the whole thing, and by the end, you discover that there was not a single mention of the destruction of the World Trade Center on September 11th, 2001. Question for you. Could you then confidently assume that that book was written prior to that infamous date? I think so. What book on the history of New York City would not include that event? So we could easily draw that conclusion that the book must have been written prior to uh, 2001. Well, the same is true with the New Testament. Its silence regarding the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem is a strong indicator that the New Testament was largely completed before uh, the temple fell. Another indicator, most of the New Testament was completed before AD 70, centers around the martyrdoms of Peter and Paul. We know from extra-biblical historical sources that Paul was put to death around AD 64 and the Apostle Peter a year later, AD 65. And though the deaths of other prominent Christians are mentioned in the New Testament, the death of Stephen, for example, and James, uh, the deaths of these two apostles are not mentioned anywhere in the New Testament. Well, that suggests that the New Testament was largely completed before these events took place. So these are just a couple uh, quick reasons Bible scholars have concluded that the New Testament was actually uh, written down early within the lifetimes of those who were eyewitnesses of Jesus' life. Those who claim that the Gospels weren't written down for two or three hundred years uh, after Jesus lived are overlooking evidence to the contrary. 
All right, let's head down the home stretch here and consider an eighth and final challenge critics have brought up. And it has to do with other supposed gospels. Other supposed gospels. Critics of Christianity commonly say that we can't know the real truth about Jesus because the early Christians left other gospels that gave us additional information about Jesus out of the Bible. Well, what are we to think about that challenge? There were writings floating around in the centuries following Jesus' life that mentioned Jesus, that were left out of the New Testament. So that does raise the question, why did Christians leave those writings out of the Bible? Well, the short answer is because they never belonged in the Bible. They never belonged in the Bible. When the so-called Gospel of Thomas and other so-called Gospels, purportedly written by Judas, Philip, and Mary Magdalene, started appearing on the scene long after these persons died, Christians recognized them for what they were, pseudo-Gospels that were uninspired spurious writings they realized these writings were not written by thomas and the others but by false teachers seeking to influence seeking to infiltrate the christian church with their unbiblical ideas scholars christians and non-christian scholars who've studied the surviving manuscripts of these writings date all of these so-called gospels to the second and 3rd century A.D., long after the time that Jesus, Thomas, Mary Magdalene, Philip, and Judas lived. And in addition to the late arrival of these writings, there was plenty of internal evidence within the writings that gave them away as fakes. For example, consider these outlandish words that the Gospel of Thomas puts into the mouths of the Apostle Peter and Jesus. I'll put a quote up here for you on the screen. Notice this. This is chapter 1, Gospel of Thomas, verse 114. It says there, Simon Peter said to them, Make Mary leave us, for females don't deserve life. That doesn't preach well on Mother's Day, does it? (laughs) That's not a text we would choose if that was in the New Testament, I'll tell you that. Happy Mother's Day. This morning we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Thomas. Make Mary leave us, for females don't deserve life, Peter says. Now, it gets crazier. Look at this. Jesus supposedly answers and says, look, I will guide her to make her male. So that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every female who makes herself male will enter the domain of heaven. I think you can see why the early Christians immediately knew this is nothing that the Apostle Peter or Jesus ever would have said. And I can imagine them being first exposed to this writing and having the same kind of feedback you gave me. Every church I teach this study in all over America, they give me the same kind of response you guys did. What? Laughing, chuckling, whore. I mean, I mean this, you realize this is not coherent with New Testament teachings or sayings by Peter or Jesus. And so um, this gospel and the others that contain all kinds of outrageous things like this, 
If we had time, I could put some more up there for you. Um, th- these gospels, so-called gospels, were left out of the Bible. Should the early Christians have accepted every fraudulent book containing things they knew were not true into the Bible so that they could avoid the charge centuries later that they purposely left out certain books? I think not. Should the editors of the Encyclopedia Britannica accept every article that people submit to them? Even if the articles contain patently false information, should they just accept those things into the Encyclopedia Britannica? So that they could appear open-minded? No. We're glad they don't do that. And we're glad the early Christians didn't do that as well. They left the gospel of Thomas out. They left the gospel of Judas out. The gospel of Mary Magdalene and these others that were uh, being passed around in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries. Friends, if you've placed your faith in the Jesus revealed to us in the four authentic gospels... As Peter said, you have not followed cleverly devised fables. You haven't followed after cleverly devised fables. When it comes to Jesus' existence, there is a wealth of historical evidence that he existed. When it comes to Jesus' deity, there's clear evidence that the earliest Christians believed he was God. When it comes to Jesus's miracles, we're convinced for a variety of reasons that he performed miracles and even rose from the grave. When it comes to the critics' claims that Jesus is just a copycat savior, we see that their claims evaporate upon closer examination. When it comes to the alleged contradictions in the gospels, we learn that it's the critics who have erred, not the writers of the gospels when it comes to uh, jesus's alleged scientific errors we think that the charges are completely unfounded when it comes to the supposed late authorship of the gospels we believe the critics claims falter under a weight of evidence that the new testament was completed before the close of the first century a.d and when it comes to other supposed gospels we're confident that the four gospels that are in the bible are the only gospels god ever intended to be in the bible and that they are sufficient to give us a correct view of jesus and this is very good news because the four authentic gospels reveal to us the best news that humanity could ever hear the news that two thousand years ago Your maker, God in the flesh, suffered and died on a cruel wooden Roman cross to take the punishment for your sins so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be saved from eternity in hell and be brought back into a relationship with him. He rose from the grave three days later. And today he's offering all of mankind the forgiveness of sins and the free gift of everlasting life to all those who will turn from their sins and place their faith in him. Friend, I exhort you to do that today. If you need to be reconciled to your maker, don't put it off. A day of judgment is coming, and one day you'll have to give an account for your life. You want to make sure that you're found on that day cleansed of your sins. And you can be if you'll turn to Jesus and place your faith in him. So do that. For the rest of you who have already done that, and I know most of you here have, let me close with this exhortation. Let's get the gospel out to people. This is news that's too good to keep to ourselves. Everlasting life? The forgiveness of sins? How can we keep that news to ourselves? God forgive us and give us the courage and boldness to talk to people about it. Amen? Amen.
Hey, before we close in prayer, I want to quickly mention a couple new resources that I brought with me today. If you're interested in doing uh, some further study along these lines that we've talked about today. The first uh, item I want to mention out there in the lobby is this brand new DVD. It came out about two weeks ago. It's called Answers to Skeptics Top 10 Questions. Questions like, how do you know God exists? Why does he allow evil and suffering? Why would I trust the Bible? Hasn't it been changed? How do you know Jesus existed? How can you say that Jesus is the only way to heaven? How could a God of love send people to hell? Ever heard any of those kinds of questions? We tackle them in that DVD. It's about 70 or 80 minutes long. Uh, Another resource is this new book. It's come out probably about six or eight months ago. It's called Scrolls and Stones, 10 Lines of Evidence for the Bible. In this book, I talk about ancient extra-biblical historical sources that confirm events in the Bible, fulfilled prophecies, scientific discoveries, ancient manuscripts, archaeological discoveries, and such. Uh, And then the last resource I want to mention is this new DVD. It's called The End Times and Beyond. And in this 83-minute long presentation, I give a broad overview of what the Bible says is going to happen in the last days. Obviously, there's a lot going on in the news today. A lot of people are wondering, where is the world headed? Well, the Bible tells us what's going to happen in the last days. And in this DVD, I give you an overview of 10 major upcoming events in Bible prophecy. And so if you want to have a better grasp on what the Bible says is going to happen in the last days, uh, that one might interest you. So I thought I'd highlight those items. Why don't we close in prayer? The worship team will come up and lead us in a final song. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're so blessed, God, for this time that we've been able to uh, come into this place and worship you and consider uh, your word and some of the challenges that uh, atheists and critics bring up. Uh, regarding Jesus. And Lord, we're thankful today, God, that there are answers to these challenges and not just answers, but a wealth of evidence for Jesus's life. We haven't followed after uh, cleverly devised fables. No, there's good evidence that Jesus lived, that he died on a cross, and that he rose from the grave. And so, Lord, we want to live for you, God, and we pray that you would embolden us, that you would give us a renewed Uh, concern uh, about those who are on their way to hell. Lord, we pray that you give us courage and boldness to talk to them about Jesus and to share the gospel with them. Help us to get the gospel out in this generation, we pray. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.